Hello, everyone, and welcome to Staffer, the show about people who work in government or campaigns at any level. And we hear their stories, uh, their highs and their lows, and we talk to them about what they took from the job to where they are today. I'm so pleased that uh, I get to present to you my conversation with Neera Tandon, who is the president and CEO of the Center for American Progress. Neera began her career in politics as an undergraduate when she was at UCLA. She volunteered for the Dukakis campaign in 1988 and again for the Bill Clinton campaign in 1992. She went to law school at Yale then uh, made her way directly into the White House, first in the communications office, but then as a domestic policy advisor to then First Lady Hillary Clinton. They became very close, as you'll hear, and when the First Lady decided to run for Senate from New York, she asked Neera to be the policy director and deputy campaign manager uh, at just the age of 29. Uh, she, Neera then worked with John Podesta and others to start the Center for American Progress. She then came uh, back uh, to work with Senator Clinton uh, on the Hill as her legislative director. Uh, and when uh, uh, Senator Clinton ran for president in 2008, Neera served as her policy director. At the conclusion of the Democratic primary in 2008, Neera joined the Obama for President campaign, helped get him elected, and then he asked her to serve on the health care team uh, that he was assembling uh, to develop the Affordable Care Act and get it passed. In 2010, Neera returned to the Center for American Progress as its chief operating officer. And today, as I said, she is its president and CEO. I spoke with Neera on August 18th, remotely, of course, given the circumstances. I want to begin before we dive into the interview with just a question about your health, because unfortunately, you're one of the millions of Americans who got COVID-19. So how are you feeling? I'm much, much better. I'm almost at full strength. And I had a pretty moderate case, but it really wiped me out. I wasn't hospitalized. I My oxygen was always fine, but there were days I really couldn't get out of bed. So it's, you know, it's a serious, serious virus. And I'm thankful to be, you know, pretty much at full strength now. Thank goodness. It must have been scary, uh, both for you and your family. You know, the scariest thing about it is just how little anyone knows about the virus. I, I mean, I didn't even have a fever. But I ended up, there were days I was sleeping 20 hours a day, which is also unusual. Like, why are you sleeping so much if you don't have a fever? But, you know, and the doctors know very, very little about it. So uh, I, the one thing I would say is lots of people can have um, symptoms off the beaten path, not, you know, the traditional symptoms. I didn't have the traditional symptoms at all. Um, but I did get a test. I did test positive. And uh, thankfully, I was basically social, socially distancing all throughout. But there were days, you know, I'm pretty sure I was asymptomatic for a while. And uh, and uh, I'm, my husband uh, had the virus, but my children never got the virus. So that's I'm very thankful for that. Right. Well, I'm glad you're feeling better now and that uh, it wasn't worse than it was. And obviously, it, it could have been. So, yeah. Thank God for no, no. It's, it's 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 very scary, though. I mean, it just the not knowing is is really the scariest part of it. Yeah. So uh, I like to begin uh, talking with folks who I respect so much um, about how they got to where they are, and mm-hmm. um, you know, in preparing for this interview, I, I've listened to a fair number of other interviews you've done and done some reading. Uh, so I know that you grew up in Bedford, Massachusetts, and for those uh, who know of it, it's a charming uh, community outside <laughs> of Boston. Uh, you grew up the daughter of immigrants from India. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So people may hear, you know, Bedford, Mass, um, and think, "Wow, what a what a lovely way to grow up um, in in an upper middle class neighborhood." But that wasn't exactly the way you grew up. Can you talk about that? Yeah. Uh, so my parents were Indian immigrants. Uh, my father came here in the fifties, and my mother came here in the sixties, and. Um, 
uh, I have an older brother. Uh, when I was five, though, my parents got divorced. I mean, we, we, I did grow up in Bedford, Massachusetts, which is a very middle class town, has really great schools. Um, you know, a suburb of Boston uh, with a lot of uh, a lot of uh, the amenities of like a traditional suburban's place. You know, crime low, uh, big public investments, great libraries. Uh, so. Though when I was uh, five, my parents got divorced and my father left. Uh, and my mother was left to raise both of us, uh, my brother and I. And she, in that moment, really faced a very tough decision, which was whether she should stay in the United States. She'd never worked a day in her life. Um, uh, so she would have to go on welfare. Uh, so whether she should stay here and go on welfare or uh, go back to India. And, you know, in India, uh, people don't really get divorced now that often. <laughs> like no one got divorced in, you know, the mid 1970s. So she, she knew she would, um, you know, there'd be a lot of stigma for us. There'd be stigma for her, but there'd be a lot of stigma for us. And so she chose, you know, I think she made this really courageous decision to stay in the United States. She went on welfare. Now we, there was a series of decisions or, or sort of fortuitous events that happened. So right before their divorce uh, in Bedford, there an apartment complex was created called Bedford Village. And Massachusetts had a law back then, which was that if you um, set aside public, if you set aside some housing for low-income people, they would speed your permits. And it was like it created an incentive structure for suburbs, essentially, suburban places like Bedford to, um, you know, rent to low-income people, which, you know, actually was sort of social engineering, but it worked, you know, was had its intended effect, which is that we were a family that was really struggling and we were able to stay in Bedford. And I was able, I think most importantly, I was able to go to Bedford's public schools, which are really top-notch schools in Massachusetts. And Massachusetts has you know, really top-notch public schools. So um, now, you know, I have distinct memories that were sort of unusual for Bedford. So, I mean, I was both, I was like the only kid I knew who was on free and reduced lunch. So I'd go through the lunch line in school and I'd have a 10 cent voucher where everyone else was paying like a dollar ten or something. And, you know, we would be at the local Purity Supreme, which was like the supermarket. And my mother would be the only person using like food stamps, which back then actually, looked like dollars. They weren't really damaged. And now they're cards. But back then they were like sort of fake money. And, um, and, you know, I remember going to the well, like the, going to the welfare office with her and things like that. But, you know, I also, I mean, Bedford was a really welcoming community. My mother um, kind of joined the Unitarian Church and they were very, they were very supportive and they helped us move out of our house into the apartment. And, Anyway, I I I uh, I only realized like many years later that it was, um, you know, a series of public policies. People made decisions to uh, create public policy to actually help people, like Section Eight housing and food stamps and free and reduced lunch and uh, you know welfare itself. And those programs really worked uh, in our case to help us. And within a couple of years, my mother got a job as a travel agent. And then eventually she got a job as a contract administrator for Raytheon. Um, you know, and, and within like six or seven years, she was actually able to buy her own house in Bedford. So we could still, I could still go to those grade schools. So, you know, I mean, I, I feel very fortunate. My mom is obviously like uh, a strong, uh, courageous woman, but also, you know, that my life would be radically different if a series of basically nameless public officials didn't make the, you know, made different decisions about public policy. Well, your life and the lives of many others. I mean, when I think of that yeah. decision that your mom made and then all of those policy, uh, you know, supports as well. I mean, think of what what a gift to the country you have been. <laughs> your life in public oh, that's service very kind. has that's been very kind, incredible. But really... um, no, but truly, you know what I'm saying? Like that—that that is somewhat the hope, right? 
that we have these in place so that, you know, kids grow up and, and become productive, you know, citizens and, and, you know, raise families of their own, et cetera. And you're proof positive. Yeah. I mean, I think the thing is what it really says to me and, you know, we, we've, we've both worked in public policy, you know, Washington makes decisions every day. It makes decisions. People in Washington, our government makes decisions for us all the day, all the time. And the real question is, can those, um, do those decisions expand opportunity or contract it? And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm fortunate to also work in public policy and I feel like, honestly, it's, it's important to pay it forward. You know, it's important for me to, work on policies that ensure that other people and other kids like me, the kid I was, have the same opportunities. And, um, you know, I think we kind of, we kind of lose sight and particularly with all the chaos and ugliness of politics these days, or that's really what, what public policy and political life should be about, which is what are, what are, what are, what are the laws and rules we're creating to make sure that, people have not like not just the word opportunity the genuine real uh opportunity to advance yeah so let me let me ask you about how you first got into politics you went to ucla uh for Mm -hmm. your undergraduate years you volunteered for the dukakis campaign in 1988 and then the clinton campaign in 1992 and my understanding is that in June of 92, uh, so towards the end of the, the primary season, the last event in California, you actually got to introduce President Clinton at an event. How did you go from campaign volunteer to introducing the candidate? Oh, uh, well, actually, you know, this is a sort of fun story. I was the um, external vice president at UCLA. And uh, so I ran for office. And, you know, uh, like, UCLA elections, student body elections, are are kind of real elections. I mean, like ten thousand people vote. Yeah, it's it's a good you know more people vote than some small towns. So uh, that was like genuinely my first real taste of uh, retail politics. But I became external vice president, and I uh, invited all the candidates, all the all the Democratic primary candidates, to uh, come to UCLA. Uh, and speak. And Bill Clinton uh, actually, or the Clinton campaign, uh, accepted my uh, invitation. And it was interesting. So they decided they, the advanced people came and uh, I met with them and, uh, and then I was helping organize the event. So I, and I was, it was like the last weeks of school and my senior year. And I was working 24 seven to get a gigantic crowd for the event. I mean, I worked really hard to get the crowd because I was like, it'd be so embarrassing if you came at my request and then didn't, like, no one showed up. So, so then, you know, like two days before the event, or even it might have even been like the day before, the advanced team, and, and, you know, we'd have these TikTok meetings about the event. And uh, they basically said, you know, we need a student to introduce them. Like, we always have a student to introduce them. And I started thinking of students who could do it. And then, you know, one of the advanced guys just said, uh, well, why don't you do it? Since, <laughs> since you like helped organize the event. And uh, so I love it. There is still a, and you know, so I hadn't really been sleeping. I also had my senior thesis due at the same time. So, um, so, <laughs> so it was kind of, it was kind of an intense thing, but I introduced, I, I think I actually introduced Hillary Clinton, and oh. who uh, introduced uh, Bill Clinton. Although I, you know, I'm a little vague on it. Although there is a, it is in the C, it isn't like the C-SPAN vault, so it is somewhere that uh, on video that I did this. And oh, that's a good so, nugget. It's so funny because you know, I mean, just to presage like the future, there were like a small contingent of Jerry Brown supporters. Who were like protesting, even though it was the last. It was the last. It was the last event of the primary. So it was the day. It was actually Bill Clinton's last event of the primary ever because it was 
the uh, primary was, it was June 2nd, 1992, and that California was the last primary and he was going to finish the nomination there. Uh, and so these Jim Brown supporters were like protesting over nothing because Brown was like not really a factor. <laughs> I remember being so angry because I hadn't slept and these, there was a small cadre of people protesting. And I, went, I knew one of the guys and I went up to him afterwards and I was like, how could you protest? Like, what is the point? This is like so nihilistic. I mean, I'm sure he didn't use the word nihilistic. I'm sure he used another <laughs> word. Um, Maybe but <laughs> and it was so funny. Like the the guy got so heated, and this and I mean, this 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 friend of mine, um, uh, who's a rather tall African American man, uh, saw this guy getting pretty heated, and he like stepped between us because I think he was worried the guy was going to get physical. And so, <laughs> but I was like, I could take him. Yeah. <laughs> There's a bunch of me. I could take him. I mean, just obviously kidding. So anyway, um, uh, you know, it's amazing that you remember so many years later. But it was a genuinely, um, you know, I, I have to say uh, campaigns are amazing experiences. So I really just was like a super volunteer. And then I worked uh, the the California Democratic Party had a program which was called, um, I can't remember, it was, it was, it was, uh, it was sort of a, like, honorary program, like, it was, they had some, like, great title for it, but basically, it was a program by which they could pay you a low stipend to work on a campaign, (laughs) so, uh, I mean, I think they paid $700 a month, and um, I, I got one of these fellowships uh, for for the Democratic Party, and I worked on the Clinton Gore campaign in 92, like sleeping on my brother's couch uh, in Los Angeles. But it, it, anyway, it was, uh, it was great. It was a great experience to work on that campaign. Uh, so after the campaign and after you finished your undergraduate years, you went to law school at Yale. Um, but during that time, you must have decided you wanted to get back into politics and you kept in touch with folks uh, in the Clinton world. How, how, when did you know that you didn't, you know, you weren't going to go practice law and that you wanted to get back into politics? And how did you keep those relationships going? Yeah, you know, it's so interesting because I had really, I mean, from a young age, uh, you know, I really had wanted to be a civil rights lawyer. And I mean, my mom really always talk to us about how politics matters. I mean, she's a little bit of a political junkie, but, and I have memories, like my early, one of my earliest memories is my mother jumping up and down like late at night because Jimmy Carter won. And I remember, and I was like six years old at this time. So, but I asked her like, why were you so excited? And she was like, well, you know, I think she basically was like, you know, a Democrat winning means like our lives will be better. And um and and you know i really was struck by then she always you know she always really thought politics mattered for our lives because you know again we benefited from all these programs that were essentially created by a president lyndon johnson created a number of the programs that made our lives possible in the united states and so I always really, you know, I mean, it's just sort of something inculcated with us that it really mattered. And um, so I was always sort of, you know, I, I, I really had been interested. I sort of thought I'd be a lawyer and I'd do civil rights work. But then, you know, in the 90s, early 90s, the Supreme Court really turned. Remember Brennan stepped down. I mean, people probably don't remember this, but when Brennan stepped down, the court really switched. Bush really was able to put a solid conservative majority on the court. And um, and so then I thought, you know, that seemed relatively futile. So and I got the political bug from the 92 campaign. So really, I mean, there was this moment when my senior year where I was like, should I really still apply to law school? Uh, but. Also in 92, uh, there were all these stories about basically how every Democrat in the primary had gone to Yale. So Bill and Hillary Clinton had went, gone to Yale Law School and, and Dukakis had gone to Yale Law School and Jerry Brown had gone to Yale Law School. I mean, I think, I think all of them went to Yale Law School. And so it was this really weird thing where I was like, oh, okay, well, you can still go to law school and <laughs> go be in politics. 
so um, I mean, maybe like a message from the gods or something. And so anyway, I decided I, I went to Yale and um, the great thing about Yale was that it was essentially a public policy school like disguised as a law school because like every class was essentially um, teachers, professors really thinking like what the law should be. Like how do you, I mean, we had classes about how you structure the law the law to create the right incentives for humans to behave in the way that the law is designed to, you know, make them behave essentially. And so uh, it was a great, I mean, I, I've used that education throughout my, throughout my career. And, uh, and I, you know, I really, I really loved Yale, but a lot of people decided to do clerkships and I was like, you know, I'm not planning to be, I'm not planning to practice law. So the people I'd worked with in the 92 campaign, I stayed connected with and I graduated Yale Law School like the end of May of 1996. And essentially the next day or within a couple of days, I started on the Clinton-Gore campaign in California in 1996. That's incredible. And you yeah. you worked on that campaign through the election. Uh, and when did, did you, and so how did you get into the White House? What was your first job there? I mean, that was, again, a sort of very, a series of fortuitous events, which is, um, you know, people don't, I'm sure people find this surprising, but California was a swing state in 1996, and the Republicans actually put their convention in San Diego. And I was the California Clinton Board Issues and Press Secretary. And so I was part of a team from the campaign, from the California campaign that went down to went down to San Diego to do uh, you know do response to the convention and do the Democratic response to the Republican convention and then we but basically the national headquarters sent in people to do the response so you know George Stephanopoulos I mean names you still have George Stephanopoulos and Chris Dodd <laughs> and Chris Dodd who was the state who was the who was the chair of the DNC at that during that year. And Ann Lewis and a whole, you know, a whole group of people kind of, um, uh, he, you know, kind of came to, came to San Diego and, uh, I dealt with a bunch of people on the campaign. And then one of the people I worked with on the campaign, Tom Janenda went into the white house and he was creating a little team in which was first the chief of staff's office and then into the, um, moved into the communication shop on research and he asked me to join it, which I, which, you know, when he went into the white house in 1997, which I did. And, uh, and, you know, I'd worked pretty closely with him there and he put together this great team. And so I went and, and did that. And then a few months after that, a, a position opened up on the domestic policy council. And, you know, it was, it was fascinating because it was this dual, it was this position that was dual, had a dual report to both the first lady, worked on children and family issues for the president, but then did all the domestic policy for the first lady. So I just like applied for the job and got the job. And that's how I started working for Hillary Clinton and, you know, towards the end of 1997. So I, I want to uh, come back to your relationship with um uh, Hillary, you worked on a number of campaigns in 88, in 92, in 96, before you got to the White House and became a staffer in, in federal government. Um, elaborate on why that was such good preparation. Yes. Yeah, so campaigns are always under-resourced in some serious sense. I mean, you can always spend more money on ads. You can always spend more money on field. And so, you know, I think um, campaigns are always looking for staff to you know, maximize your impact. And so it's easier, it's, you know, it's easy to get more and more responsibilities. And so in almost every campaign I've been on, I, I was doing more, I had more responsibilities with more diverse work at the end of the campaign than at the beginning. And so I really think it's just a great opportunity to, um, you know, learn, take on, get new skills, do different things. I, I was always sort of a policy person, but I learned the ropes around press, communications, um, field organizing. And, and also in campaigns, you just have to make decisions a lot faster. Events move relatively quickly. I mean, in government, they move quickly too, but in campaigns, 
they aren't, you know, they don't have the expanse of the government and you have, you do have to make decisions relatively rapidly. I mean, it's much faster now in the age of Twitter, but even, you know, even back then, reporters call for a response and you don't have all day to formulate it. So I think it really trains you to think quickly, to move quickly. Um, and I'll say, I, you know, I, I, you just, it, if you do it and you do it well, you also gain a confidence that allows you to make decisions in other fields very quickly. Yeah. So I want to ask you about uh, a campaign story, uh, but from 2000. So this is when First Lady Hillary Clinton was running for the U.S. Senate in New York. And there's a very famous moment that happens uh, in one of the debates with her opponent, Rick Lazio, who was a Republican congressman and viewed as a moderate and was a formidable opponent. Um, you know, her victory in retrospect is looked at as inevitable, but it wasn't. It was a competitive race. But it yeah. really turned at that debate. Can you tell us that story? Yes. So uh, Rick Lazio was our opponent. And the reason why he was doing so well is because he was sort of fresh faced and people didn't really know him. And um, and he and he, you know, he was sort of in competition with Hillary. Like he, we were all we were only a few points ahead of him going into that debate. And, you know, people had some doubts about Hillary and um, she I mean, it's not unusual. I mean, in retrospect, she had some, she had some deep, there were suburban women who had some reservations about her. Women could be her harshest critics. Uh, and so we went into the first debate and it's was like in hindsight, so funny is that in our debate prep, a lot of our advisors thought Rick Lazio was going to be like really nice. <laughs> mm. yeah. And uh so that was uh you know that was kind of uh ironic because in the debate he was very aggressive uh and, and at the end of the debate you know we'd had this whole discussion about uh super PACs and stock money contributions and you know I'm thankfully I cannot I cannot really even remember what the issue was but in the end of the debate he asked her to sign a pledge, but he didn't just ask her to sign a pledge. He walked over to her and kind of physically stood over her. And, you know, Hillary isn't actually that tall. She's like five, six or something. And Rick Lazio stood over her and said, and basically yelled at her, sign it, sign it. And, you know, it was a really interesting moment in the campaign because um, a, lot, a lot of our advisors sort of thought it wasn't, um, you know, didn't think it was a big deal. Many of them men. Um, but a lot of us, a lot of the women thought it was a big deal. And actually, you know, Howard Wolfson, who was the communications director at the time, um, you know, he identified it immediately as a big problem for Rick Lazio. And he moved very aggressively to talk about how, you know, he was essentially like yelling at her in a kind of threatening manner. And I mean, it was very uncomfortable to watch. Like, you know, she kind of, he walks up to her, she kind of steps backward. He's literally like, you know, looking down on her. Um, anyway, you know, after that, <laughs> the polls moved to about 10 points and they, they came back a little bit, but she won by seven. So, it turned out to be a pretty defining moment in the campaign. And I think, uh, I think it was an, I think people sort of saw her in a, um, in a kind of different light after that. Yeah. Um, so she goes to the Senate, she takes you mm -hmm. with her. Um, you, well, I didn't her... join immediately. I came a couple Oh, that's years right. Later. Okay. Yeah, yeah. So... No, I, I stayed in New York. My husband is an artist and <laughs> we wanted to stay in New York cause he's an artist. Um, but then, you know, I kind of, I kind of thought during the Bush years, I felt like I wanted to come back to DC, which he understood. So a couple of years later, I became her, uh, legislative director. And, uh, thank you for, uh, correcting me on that. And w when, um, I mean, she was well known, um, as a workhorse in the Senate. And I remember observing and reading about that was very intentional. She was, you know, a huge national figure before she went to the Senate and did not want others to think she was a show horse. But 
on a staff level, tell me what that means, like how that gets translated into the work that you led as her policy director. Yeah, so, you know, I think what's so interesting about this is, I mean, so I worked, I started working for Hillary in um, 1997. And when she was first lady of, of the United States, I mean, she's a policy nerd. She loves public policy. She would much prefer to be in a policy discussion about what we sh- what we should do on a public policy than do events or, you know, interviews or things like that. So, I mean, she's, she's a person who's genuinely attracted to public life through the lens of public policy. That was, you know, how, what she did in her 20s and her 30s and her 40s. It was always what drove her. So the workhorse part was not, you know, it was was very, it was very, came very easily to all of us. I mean, it came very easily to me. I mean, when we were in the Senate campaign, Hillary would talk about issues that like no campaign ever talks about. Like, <laughs> you know, I remember talking to her, she called me up and had read an article about, article about, you know, folic acid and how much babies are ingesting folic acid, which is like an, an important, important thing for them to an important nutrient. And, and she started wanted to talk about it at an event. I was like, Hillary, no one is going to know what you're talking about. <laughs> Look, could you just do the education event? Because, and you know, it was a big adjustment Fol- for Folic acid running. is not in the polling, ma'am. <laughs> I know. But it's like, you know. I mean, it's so interesting because people think of her, I mean, it's, the tragedy of Hillary is how people so misunderstand her because you know, she never looked at polling before she ran in the Senate. I mean, this is just yeah. when she was first lady. In fact, when she was first lady, she thought of her kind of job as to bring was to bring attention to issues no one cared about. So as first lady, she did events on folic acid or brain development or, you know, mental health issues or, um, you know, she, she'd done all this incredible work on foster care. You know, she really thought of the issues that a she really thought like, you know, I, if I'm going to be first lady, I'm really going to focus on things, try to bring the press to issues that they're never going to think about. And so when she, it was a big change for her to run for Senate and then actually try to talk about things that people cared about all the time, right? Because, you know, that's sort of honestly what Bill Clinton and Al Gore did in the, in the White House. And so, um, so anyway, she, she adjusted to it. And I, so I actually thought of the Senate um, it was important for us to communicate that she was a workhorse, but it wasn't really hard for her to be a workhorse. Mm-hmm. Um, you sure. know, so the what I mean by that is she gave credit to other senators for bills. You know, when she uh, when she worked on an issue, she gave credit to other people, and um, she'd always try to share the spotlight with other people. But it, you know, in terms of what she actually did, which is focus on bills and law and change. I mean, that was a great job. She loved that. You know, she, and you know, for me, one of the, like being a policy person working for Hillary is, is, is demanding, right? Cause she's really, really smart and knows public policy better than anyone who works for her. But, but it's very definitely daunting, particularly in her like late twenties to do that. But, um, but, you know, she's, you know, I learned so much from her and, and she's, I mean, she's, again, it's, 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 uh, it's something she really, you know, excels at and enjoys. Um, so it wasn't hard to be a workhorse. Uh, it just was a little work to show she was a workhorse. Yeah. So let me uh, just pick up on that. You, she was a, at first a boss, but she you know, has become a mentor and friend to you. You worked, you have worked, you know, with her throughout her career and your career. You know, um, I don't want to jump over too much, uh, but you worked for an 08, you worked for her um, uh, uh, in 16, you know, you worked with her in the Senate, in the White House uh, as First Lady. What was it like uh, to have her as a boss and a mentor and a friend? What did you learn from her? Oh my God, it's even really, it's hard to articulate. Uh, yeah, sure. I would say, um, I mean, I could go on and on. 
I, when I became president of CAP, I honestly would go from meeting to meeting and think in my head, what would Hillary do? <laughs> so, mm-hmm. I mean, I learned how to be a leader from Hillary. I learned how to listen to people and really get information out of people and, you know, in a way that they're super comfortable from Hillary. From Hillary. I, you know, I learned a million things i mean it's it's hard to it's hard to know where it like begins and ends because i started working for her in as i said in my late 20s and um and it's you know it's a little bit like the mafia you never really leave and so, <laughs> I mean, you know like a couple like like 10 days ago she emailed me about the post office and like what's happening with the post office and i was like yeah it never it never is it's like then we talked about the post office for a while yeah. uh and so it never really ends um you know, I would say the the hardest thing about working for Hillary, honestly, was just it's it's painful how people misunderstand her. I mean, it's just really like it's super that was the most painful thing. I mean, just the caricature of her and the the meanness people have about her. It's um I mean, it's just, it's like hard, you know, because I, I did work for her and, uh, but you know, she treated her first lady staff as like her kind of family. We celebrated birthdays when I got married, even though I'd only worked for her for like a year when I got married, she threw a you know shower for me in in the yellow oval of the white house, you know, so my Indian, my Indian immigrant mom is like in the white house like in the in the residence of the white house like not in like the just even in the state room like she did it in her like in her house basically and you know she was so genuinely like you know just very nice to my mom and and um and so you know she like wraps around when my dad when my kids are born when my daughter was born my first child she was the second person to call me in the hospital and when my son was born she was the first person which is a little weird because you think my parents would call first, but anyway, <laughs> um, but, but you know, she's just, she's really like a person who's really there and it's just the public caricature of her. And I think it's a, you know, I think that Hillary has lived with our changing attitudes towards women because honestly, you know, she, she exemplifies things, traits that are like men, you know, she's, she she is a commanding presence and she is you know what we ident you know she's ambitious and she's like you know strong i mean she is a very strong person um and uh and i think it's just like i've watched essentially three decades of uh caricature that has made her in some ways just like the the whipping post for our weird sexism and you know um ambivalence about women and their power in society and you know i i i i think it's you know i mean she's done so many things and her life is one of incredible privilege and so i but you know so i don't i don't feel like sorry for her but i feel like it's just such an injustice and so kind of enraging um but and in and, and its own way kind of tragedy but 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 that's really a tragedy because like what america has lost not because and what we have now not not because of like you know i mean her life she's had a she's had a great life and has contributed greatly to the country yes uh couldn't agree with you more on all of that uh and and i and i worry that you know, despite living through what we are right now uh, with the Trump administration, when we could have had someone of such character and caliber uh, as Hillary Clinton, I still don't feel like the lessons of media coverage and perception around gender and women leaders really change that much. I feel like it, it's been noted that she paid such a heavy price for that. But I don't know that it would be all that different if one of the other women uh, who ran for president this time were our nominee. Yeah, I mean, I think I think it's it's I think I would disagree a little bit. I think Good. that you I think we see with um, the selection of Kamala Harris that 
you know, and the, the, the conversation before her selection about her ambition, you know, that created such a kind of um, counter protest. I mean, it was really somewhat, you know, it's really enraging. <laughs> and I, I think that it is, I think there are a lot of lessons learned. I think there are some lessons that were learned that were sort of bad lessons. Like I do think a lot of Democratic primary voters came away from the experience of Hillary losing, who was, you know, one of the most accomplished people, not women, people to run ever and to lose to, you know, essentially a misogynistic pig. I think a lot of voters thought we can't take a risk with another woman. Oh, and I think even women thought that. So I think that's sort of a sad. At the same time, I do think people are much more vigilant about um, some of these things. So the when the story came out about, you know, concerns about Kamala Harris's ambition, there was a real pushback against that, <laughs> dramatic pushback. Yeah. That's and and I don't think the media is so fantastic on its own, honestly. But I think if if women organize and engage and really direct their concern, it can shift things. And I think that's very different. I think women are much more attuned now to the kind of sexism that just permeate can permeate the culture and can really do damage to. women. Yeah. Yeah. That's a very good point. And you've made me more optimistic. I want to revisit. um, I want to end with Center for American Progress, which is an organization you've helped build. um, Mm -hmm. And I want to hear about your work today. But let me you you ended up working in uh, the Obama White House. So after the after the 26 campaign, um, uh, I'm sorry, the 2008 campaign. Yeah. um, You were one of the the, uh, Clinton staffers who after the primary was over, went to work for the Obama campaign. And, you know, there were many, but also many did not. It was obviously a bruising uh, primary among friends and family. And so those are always hard. What was like, what was that first day like um, when you started with the Obama campaign? And how did you integrate? To be honest, it was a little awkward. Um, But (laughs) I mean, so so honestly, uh, I had no, I mean, I knew I had worked with David Axelrod on Hillary's Senate campaign in 2000. I mean, people don't remember this, but David had worked doing ads for the state party in 2000. So he was, you know, we were like, there was work that people were doing kind of collaborating. And so I knew David and he was a friend of mine. And when the campaign ended, he reached out to me and, um, uh, asked essentially asked me to interview. I interviewed with um, then Senator Obama and uh, they um, then they offered me the job and I started in July in Chicago. And, you know, I, I mean, to be a thousand percent candid, I, there were definitely people in the campaign who were, uh, shall I say, resistant um, to, <laughs> uh, you know, it took them a while. Uh, I won't name them, but we have many mutual friends, I'm sure, uh, who were, you know, pretty, I mean, I think sometimes verging on slightly hostile, honestly. But, you know, I, the people, what's fascinating is, you know, the person who was always fantastic. Um, and when I interviewed with him, he said, you know, he had already met with Hillary when I interviewed with him. And he said to me what he said to her, which is that there's really only two people who know what it's like to have gone through this primary, like Hillary Clinton and me. And, um, and, you know, he, Barack Obama is a person who has confidence in his ability, and he also really had to work his hardest to defeat Hillary Clinton, and he had a lot of respect for her. You know, I mean, he, at the end of the day, these are two people who really had incredible respect for each other, having really tested each other. Um, so, I mean, Hillary, when I told her that they had talked to me about coming on the campaign, said, you know, I'm going to do everything I can to help him win. And you have to do everything you can to help him win, even though she literally just lost within a week. So, so uh, you know, I, I went on board. But, you know, I'd say it was a little frosty. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, not everyone. Some people were great. Like, uh, you know, some people were really great. Anita Dunn was fantastic. Um, you know, she was super welcoming. And. 
Um, but there were people who were dead, who were, who were, you know, it was a long campaign and they had, you know, basically trained themselves to kind of really dislike Hillary <laughs> and, and, uh, and her campaign. And, um, and so, you know, I had to try to dispel that and, and, uh, you know, it took some time, but it, it took a little, I mean, but people thought out and. I worked hard and I, you know, wanted Barack Obama to be president and, you know, it took a little while, but they, they it, but it, it, it's not like it was overnight for everybody. The election ends well. President Obama is elected uh, to the White House. He asks you to work on health care. Um, where did you work and as part of what team and what did you do? So I worked uh, at HHS. I was a senior advisor on health reform. Um, but essentially, I kind of spent most of my time working at the White House. Uh, Nancy Andropral, who was the healthcare czar, uh, for so she led the kind of entire effort to pass the bill. Um, she put together a team of people, so which brought together people in the White House. Um, she had her own team. She had folks from the Office of Management and Budget. She had folks from the National Economic Council, and she had folks from HHS and Treasury. Uh, and so we all worked on different elements of the bill. In the beginning, it was fleshing out the bill. In the middle, it was working on really nettlesome issues like um, the public option or abortion or immigration. And then towards the end, it was really just working the hill to pass the bill so uh which is a great experience uh and um and uh i mean i at the when the campaign ended i had this whole thought of whether i could should go back to work for hillary uh at the state department or work on the uh work on you know healthcare reform for the president and uh, well, you know, it was not a totally easy decision, but I uh, really was thrilled to work on healthcare. I mean, it was painful because it really <laughs> genuinely felt many oh, times no. like we were going to lose and it was going on and on. <laughs> so I'm, not, I'm not saying it's like a joyful experience, but in the end, uh, I mean, I, I'll say uh, when we worked on the, the Center for American Progress really led the effort to mean to beat back the ACA repeal. We worked with many other groups. So we were a lead group in, when Trump became president. And people came up to me. I mean, I, I have many of these experiences, but we were at this, we organized this protest at the airports for senators coming back to vote on the bill. And, and I was at this airport protest and this man came up to me and started opening up his shirt, which is a little unusual. <laughs> but then... <laughs> said to me, you know, he showed me this scar and said, I'd never had health insurance in my life. And then when the ACA passed, I was able to get health insurance. And I went to the doctor and he told me I needed emergency heart surgery. And so I'm only alive because of the ACA. So I chose to drive, you know, 50 miles or whatever it was to come here to this protest. And it, that, you know, I mean, just to go full circle, that is why we should we should be in public policy or work in public policy because you can do things in public policy that solve you know make people's lives better and you know that man is alive today because Barack Obama decided that he wanted to spend the political capital necessary to pass a bill that would cover millions upon millions of people the largest expansion of healthcare since Johnson's creation of Medicare and Medicaid and so you know, public policy is about making people's lives better. And I saw that firsthand in the ACA, but I also experienced it uh, firsthand when I was growing up and, you know, people making decisions to create programs that help people. And uh, so I, I'm, it's the whole experience is something that I can tell my grandkids about. Well, and you are still very much in the fight. Uh, you, I mean, you are leading the Center for American Progress, which is, without exaggeration, you know, probably the leading progressive think tank. Um, and that is with affection and love to all the other progressive think tanks that exist. But I remember a world in which it didn't exist. And you were part of the team that established it and have grown it 
into an organization of significant influence and you know, intellectual influence and real political power. Um, can you talk to me about what it's like now to be a principal of an organization? You know, you've been a staffer in many organizations, as we just talked about, and now you're the principal. What is it that you want your staff to be thinking about um, as you run an organization of you know, significant breadth and depth? You know, that's, that's a great question. It was such a difference. I mean, it was such a jump to move from being a staffer. So before I was president, you know, I was COO and I'd had these other experience, all, all of which were essentially a form of a staffer. But being a principal is really, really different. I think that the most important lesson that I that I learned, uh, and I also I I got this from Hillary, is you really, as a principal, you really have to give your staff space to disagree with you and challenge you and um, add in their thoughts. It's very easy to create a culture where, you know you kind of say what should happen and people basically do it. And uh, it's really important, you know, just to say to people, this is sort of my, this is my view, but welcome other views, or I could be wrong about this. So what do you think? Or start off just, you know, even if you have a view on something, don't state it until other people have stated their views. Because I think in, when you're a principal, first of all, not everyone tells you everything. <laughs> and, uh, you know, people do manage their principles, uh, and uh, you want to give people the comfort and um, ability to really do what staff should do, which is to give counter views and help make the best decision possible by, you know, sharing alternatives. And I, I genuinely believe all decision making, whether it's about public policy or strategy or communications, are better when you've you kind of see many sides to it and then move forward. Now. I've, Oftentimes, I will do what I thought I would do in the beginning, right? So it's not like I'm always just relitigating issues, but and there are things I've been wrong about. But you know, overall, uh, in you know, the most important job I have is setting the strategic direction of the organization. I mean, I have to. I'm responsible for its fundraising and for making sure it's managed well, but it's shaping the strategic direction of the of the organization. And I, you know, I do get valuable insights from our staff and the exec team and, and everyone at CAP. But at the end of the day, I have to make those decisions myself. And how do you see uh, CAP in the future? I mean, it is, as I said, it has grown into something so significant. It is known as sometimes the White House in waiting. It is a major contributor to democratic uh, policy thinking. Um, it is politically adept. So, you know, in a way, it reflects your background, that is knowing politics as well as policy. In terms of a, you know, potential democratic administration, or God forbid we have, you know, something other than that, um, how do you see Center for American Progress fitting uh, into both of those worlds? Well, I'll take the nightmare scenario first, which is if Trump wins re-election, you know, I think we'll have to continue to play a role as the um, sort of think tank of the resistance, so helping not just provide ideas, but organizational muscle behind opposing, uh, you know, a Trump second term, which will be really scary because it will be so unhinged. <laughs> and and I mean, he will have, he'll, he will feel absolutely no check, which will be far worse than what we are currently experiencing. Hard as that is to imagine. You know, I think in a, in a democratic administration, you know, if Biden, if we have a Biden-Harris administration, I think the, the focus for CAP has always been um, not just how to have ideas, but how to make change happen. You know, we're very proud of the work we've done over decades to on issues like healthcare, you know, where we developed the framework for the that was eventually became the Affordable Care Act or, you know, ending the Iraq war, the kind of the work we've done on energy, which is really energy issues, which is has had huge impact from um, you know, from the Green Blue Alliance or just a range of issues on climate and the and the rest. So 
our focus has always been to how to, you know, not just to have the idea, but to think through how to make the idea happen. And so we do take into account how to um, not just to have the idea, but how you can move an idea through the political process. And, you know, I don't really apologize for that. <laughs> I think like from my own experience, it's not, it's not like, it doesn't mean that much to have an idea. It, it makes change in people's lives when an idea becomes law. And, and change happens from ideas and social movements, not social movements alone or ideas, but both of them together. And so, I mean, I, I don't take a, I, I think there's a, there's a kind of thinking today in many corners that, you know, it's, it's, you just want to have the most progressive idea. And I mean, I don't think that's, I think it's important to do the right thing, but it's really impactful to make people actually make a change in people's lives and so we do think through how to do that you know and and what not you know not can what can make it through the most conservative structures but what can you know what can really meet the moment and um you know i recently wrote something on a new social contract and i think this is a moment where we should think expansively about the role of government to help people because i think the government I think people in the moment of the pandemic understood incompetent government versus competent government is a really critical thing in their life. And we're going to have major challenges. But and, you know, I, I think the uh, the Biden campaign has has seized this well. They have a very expansionist economic agenda, but it's, you know, it's it's received as well within the mainstream. And so I think that's that's a sign that, you know, they, they understand the moment. Um, so I see our future as really one of trying to make progressive change in people's lives and really thinking through how to do that, how to make that, how to have actual impact on people's lives and how to work through the political process uh, to effectuate that change. And I think that means moving the ball, but, uh, and, and being bold, but not, but not impervious to the political constraints that exist because I don't, you know, that if you fail at public policy, I mean, I learned this well from healthcare policy, you know, Hillary, Hillary's first big attempt at healthcare did not work. And it took us decades to come back to it. You know, it took like, you know, 15 years to come back to transformative health reform. So, you know, it's it's not like it's like inconsequential to try and fail when you're doing public policy. And that's, you know, I think that's central to our understanding and central to CAP's mission is to is to actually have impact. Yeah. Oh, well put. Um, I I've taken up a lot of your time. Um, I would be remiss if I just didn't ask you this one last question. Um, sure. Because we've talked about the Biden-Harris ticket. And Kamala Harris uh, being on the ticket is a historic moment for a lot of reasons. She is a woman of color um, with a rich heritage, including Indian American heritage. And as a woman uh, of Indian uh, descent yourself, what does this moment mean to you and your family? You know, it's so funny because, um, you know, obviously her name was in the mix and <laughs> things like that for vice president. But I really, I cried tears of joy when she was elected. And, you know, my mom is an Indian immigrant who raised two children on her own. And Kamala Harris's mom, who's since passed, is it was an Indian immigrant who raised two kids on her own. And um, I, I think it says a lot about the character of a country that you can have essentially a first generation immigrant um, or the daughter of the first generation immigrant can become the nominee for vice president. And it says, you know, so much that Kamala has, you know, she has a Jamaican, she has a Jamaican father and an Indian mother and, it's, and has risen to the, be a Senator and hopefully the next vice president of the United States. And I think what it means the most to me is, is that, you know, honestly, so much of what has been driving our policies and their debates and the, pub the public discourse has been a contest of visions between like what America really is and whether America is for like a small group or is it for all of us? 
And I think in Joe Biden selecting Kamala Harris, it, you know, he obviously believes that the country is for all of us and he wouldn't campaign the way he does if they didn't believe that. But it's just, it's such a perfect response to Trump to have a VP that is, that is the embodiment of all that Trump is trying to end, right? I mean, he wants to make this country a white country, a country that isn't, you know, that, that repels immigrants, doesn't welcome them. I mean, he wants to change our immigration policies to be essentially immigration policies for white people and not brown people. And I just, I just, I thought it was, I mean, it was deeply moving to me because I feel these like connections between her experience and my experience, but I also just more fundamentally believe that it's, you know, it's a repudiation. If Kamala Harris becomes VP, it's essentially a repudiation of everything Trump has fought for. Yeah. Uh, Nira Tandon, um, I have uh, I've been a colleague of yours at times, but a, an admirer of yours uh, for my entire time in Washington. Since I've got truly, I mean it. I I mean it. Thank you so much. Um, this conversation has been great. I could do it for two more hours, but you've been so generous with your time, and um, really all, all I can say so is much. thank you. No, no thank it's you been very great. much. Thank you. Well, friends, I can smell the jet fumes at National Airport, which means another episode of Staffer is adjourned. I want to thank you all for listening to the only show created for and about the people who work in government and politics at any level. I do have a quick favor to ask. Please follow, subscribe, and like the show on all of your favorite podcast platforms. Positive reviews are everything in this business, I'm told. And please make sure to sign up for episode alerts at staffershow.com. And check out Staffer Show on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and LinkedIn. Thanks all.